Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I am Anne-Sylvain Chassani, the World News Editor. On the show this week, we'll be discussing Donald Trump's threat to withdraw from the so-called Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty and the question mark it puts over what is left of the arms control arrangements that have helped the US and the Soviet Union contain the risk of nuclear confrontation. Joining me down the line is Henry Foy, our Moscow bureau chief, Michael Peel, our diplomacy correspondent based in Brussels. And in the studio with me is Daniel Domby, deputy world editor and former Washington diplomacy correspondent. The treaty was signed in 1987 between Ronald Reagan and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev. It stopped the arms race in short and medium range land based weapons and it has been a pillar of stability in Europe. Dan, let's start with you. Donald Trump expressed these threats on the eve of a meeting between his rather hawkish national security adviser John Bolton with Russian President Vladimir Putin. How serious do you think he is? He has a track record of acting on these kind of threats, right? I think the US is uh, very serious. Mr Trump has said that they are going to do this. Mr Bolton has since said subsequently that they will serve notice at the appropriate time. I think it takes about six months to withdraw. There's a procedure for it. And I think that there's no reason to doubt that they're going to follow through with what they've said. After all, this is a treaty which the US has expressed doubts for the last five or so years about Russia violating. It's a treaty that basically brought in to get rid of all of those intermediate missiles that really transformed European politics in the 1980s. The cruise missiles, the Pershings, the SS-20s, these had millions of people on the streets. They triggered the fall of a German government. It was a very big deal. But over the last five or six years, the US has been really worried that Russians have been testing missiles in violation of it. And I think the Obama administration tried to talk the Russians round and has failed. And we know how the Trump administration goes about these kind of treaties. I would add just two or three other things. Number one, this is part of a broader initiative by John Bolton, Mr. Trump's national security advisor. It goes well before the Trump administration. He was very involved in getting rid of a previous arms control treaty, the Anti-Ballistic Missiles Treaty. He's very sceptical about these treaties. Secondly, the US feels that it's having its hands tied versus China, which I think is another concern here, which they're dealing with. And thirdly, I think there is fundamentally a calculation among some of the Americans that perhaps this is kind of like history replayed. Part of a folk legend, and perhaps it's much more than that, is that one of the reasons why the Soviet Union fell was because it couldn't match the US in a big arms spending race in the 1980s when gas and oil prices were low. I think they look at the state of Russian economy and think, well, you know what? If it comes to a nuclear arms race, we can outspend you. Certainly there seemed to be talk of that kind by Mr Trump, or at least that threat in comments that he's made in recent days. Thank you, Dan. Henry, presumably the view is quite different from Moscow. I mean, the Kremlin has always denied claims that it is violating the treaty. What has been the reaction to the threats? 
Well, and Sylvain, there's been a mixture of upset and, and shock here, either real or manufactured, and then a lot of bluster and threats. This is a dangerous move and one that uh, the US and Mr. Trump will regret. The evidence seems pretty clear that Moscow has been violating the treaty for some time. They, of course, deny it, as you said, but missiles such as the 9M729 are pretty obviously in breach of this, and they have been testing those. Their only real defense is that the US was doing the same with the missile defense shield that they are constructing in Romania and other countries in Europe. I spoke with the defense ministry advisor last night who suggested Russia knew this was likely to happen at some point, but they'd hoped to push the US into negotiating a new treaty rather than just a full collapse. John Bolton last night at his press conference in Moscow after meeting with Mr. Putin suggested that no new deal was on the table. So that looks a little bit like a miscalculation from the Kremlin. Mr. Putin admonished Mr. Bolton at the start of their talks yesterday, and I suspect that the belligerent rhetoric from Moscow about threats to global security and stability of Europe will continue. But frankly, there's not really much that Russia can do about this, uh, unless, of course, Mr. Putin has something really the special up his sleeve uh, plan for talks uh, with Mr. Trump uh, that are scheduled next month in Paris. But why do you think Moscow would want to keep the treaty? Do you think that, you know, as Daniel was saying, they fear that they could be outspent by the US? Yeah, I think spending is one of it. I mean, really, Russia's always had an edge in land-based missiles. They're primarily a land power. uh, And this treaty was designed to protect European capitals, as Dan said, from a Soviet strike. The US has much uh, more advanced sea-based missiles. So keeping this in place essentially restricted the US from building up similar land-based capabilities. And at the same time, the alleged violations by Russia, which almost all military experts say have taken place, means that today they have that advantage. So In the short term, they're a winner. Uh, Essentially, you could see missiles with the ability to hit Berlin or Paris or London deployed close to the EU border in in quite a short time. And that, of course, shifts the balance of power on the continent. But but longer term, uh, this is bad news for Moscow. I mean, first, they're going to have to ramp up spending uh, if the US steps up its capabilities and, and, and Russia's budget does not have a lot of flexibility at the moment. And secondly, this is just a major blow to Russia's global pride. I mean, the INF Treaty was one of just a few remaining things that Moscow could point to to prove that it was still a superpower. Uh, It was a throwback to a time when both sides respected each other, saw each other as equals. And now the US has just ripped it up and just to throw salt in the wounds has said, well, part of their thinking was that they really need to deal with China. And Michael, uh, let me turn to you then. A U.S. withdrawal from the INF would be greatly felt in Europe, as Henry mentioned. It injects an element of nuclear instability into European security just four years after the Russian annexation of Crimea. How have European countries reacted? Well, it's certainly got people worried, both privately and publicly, and the EU has made a statement in which it has said it expects Russia to address the concerns about its its compliance that, that Henry just discussed there. But also it has said that the United States should consider the consequences of its possible withdrawal and the security of its allies in the whole world, and then adding the world doesn't need a new arms race that would benefit no one and on the contrary could bring even more instability. So that's a pretty explicit statement from the 28 members of the the EU about the worries uh, this has caused. And on a bilateral basis, uh, there's also been lobbying. President Emmanuel Macron has used a phone call with Mr. Trump to stress the importance of the treaty, particularly um, for European security and, and strategic stability. 
And so Macron has arranged a meeting, right, between Trump and Putin in Paris for the commemorations marking the 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War. What can the Europeans do to contain this uh, threat of nuclear escalation? Well, I think this is another situation that the Europeans seem to find themselves in um, all too often these days, where they're they're kind of squeezed in a situation which is very uncomfortable for them, but which they they can't do a great deal about. And and there are some parallels in that respect uh, with the U.S. decision to withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal, which obviously is something that that worries Europe from a security point of view, because Iran is is much closer to to Europe than than the U.S. So there will be lobbying, and there will be an emphasis on. On, as Henry has pointed out, the, the, the way that this was uh, a treaty that essentially benefited Europe greatly and was, was sort of designed for it 30 years ago at the end of the Cold War. And, and so why throw all that away? And I think that the, the message also to the US will be, well, what are you getting out of this? Because uh, it's not easy to see at the moment that whatever the American concerns, and those concerns, by the way, are shared in Europe and by NATO, the Secretary General of uh, NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, early on Wednesday talked about how NATO as an alliance shared those concerns about Russian violations. But the question will be, and the question posed perhaps to to Trump administration people will be, what what is the advantage for the US in doing this? You perhaps ceded some moral high ground. The argument might be made. You've once again made it seem as if the US doesn't uphold its commitments and that you've removed any constraints that Russia might still have felt, whatever the, the violations that may have taken place. Now, those kind of arguments could be made. But um, as, as we know, a lot of European protests on the Iran nuclear deal and, and other matters have fallen on, on deaf ears in the Trump administration. Well, talking about Iran, it seems that the uh, US withdrawal will make any effort to set limits to nuclear arsenals around the world more difficult, right? So should we expect China, India and Iran to limit their nuclear ambitions? Well, I think there are two particular points to look at. One is the specific point about China, that the idea which uh, Mr. Trump uh, uh, has raised of, of perhaps getting China in a, in a kind of amended version of this bilateral deal between the US and, and Russia hasn't attracted a lot of immediate support. And one of the difficulties that analysts point to is that China obviously lays a strong emphasis on its own strategic autonomy, but also it has a lot of sea-based capability. And, you know, we we all know that the importance that uh, China stakes on uh, the South China and East China seas and its activities there and building up fortifications on islands and so forth. So the treaty would not only have to be expanded to include China, it would have to be significantly amended from what it is at the moment, which is a land forces based treaty to something that brought in sea forces as well. And then that would create the knock on complication that, as was discussed earlier, uh, the US has its own significant sea based capabilities which it wouldn't want to see constrained. Then zooming out, there's a bigger point here, I think, about how, as you said, that these various international deals that the US is now questioning or repudiating do have a knock-on effect uh, with each other. I mean, it, it does further complicate the situation with regard to Iran. I mean, how can you pull out of the Iran nuclear deal, but then try and do this kind of missile deal with them? I mean, on the face of it, the, the politics of that are quite difficult, um, to say the least. Um, and then, of course, there's uh, North Korea looming in the background. And it's another international weapons control deal that the U.S. has 
pulled out of? And is that something that the North Korean regime can make something of when they say that, well, you know, why should we trust what the U.S. does or, um, you know, use that to portray the U.S. as the kind of bad faith negotiator? Now, of course, the U.S. argument would be, you know, we're not we're not doing this uh, for the fun of it. This is because we think these deals are all flawed in various ways or people aren't complying with them. But you can certainly see how opponents of the U.S. could uh, make capital from from what they've done on this missile treaty. Dan, more broadly, and perhaps to conclude, what does the threat say about the other arms rule control arrangements? Are we entering a free-for-all era? Uh, I think we're seeing the long, slow death of the arms control regime that began about 50 years ago. I mean, remember in the 1960s, President Kennedy said that, you know, unless there were efforts taken, there could be something like 15 to 25 new nuclear states by the 1970s. And it was against that fear that they agreed the uh, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is the one that keeps supposedly official nuclear powers to a small club, even though there are several other countries that have developed nuclear weapons since then. It's far short of the 15 to 25 that he talked about. But since then, we've really seen those efforts run out of steam. There was a comprehensive test ban treaty agreed in the 90s that's never been ratified by the US. It probably never will be ratified by the US. President Obama, when he came in, he was very much the opposite to President Trump, and he wanted to begin with a nice big bilateral agreement with the Russians. That was seen in part as a way of trying to overcome the legacy of John Bolton and uh, his approach to arms control, ironically enough, and also trying to get Russia on side. But that kind of effort we're not going to see again. In fact, President Obama, to get that arms treaty through, this is the new START agreement that's expiring in 2021, he had to spend $80 billion in modernizing the US nuclear weapons complex. That was a down payment that Obama had to do at the very height of his powers. So the idea that new arms treaties are going to come into force to replace those that are being outdated or have their maturity coming up seems very far-fetched. At the same time, we've seen the US dump the anti-ballistic missile treaty. The conventional forces in Europe treaty is basically a dead letter. It's not a observed anymore. This treaty is now clearly doomed. So that then raises the Iran treaty they're exiting from. That then raises the question, how long can this obviously flawed, most important treaty of all, the Nuclear Proliferation Treaty, the NPT, how long can that remain in place? People can say, oh, that doesn't govern Pakistan, it doesn't govern India, it doesn't govern Israel, it doesn't govern North Korea. But it's done huge amounts in getting other countries to give up their nuclear weapons. How long can that survive? The rest of the old order's crumbling. How long can the absolute foundation of it remain? Well, I will be watching further developments very closely. And on this rather grim note, that's it for this week. Many thanks to you and Henry Foy, Michael Peel and Dan Domby. Till next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.